Welcome to episode 7 of the Pop Anime Comics Lounge. This week we continue with our interview with Denny O'Neill. But before we get into that interview, I would like to remind everybody that if you would like to support this podcast, please go to popanimecomics.com. Click on the link to support the podcast. It'll bring you right to Amazon.com. If you purchase something from Amazon.com, which could be practically anything, I get a small commission, which helps to keep my production costs lower. In this interview, we spoke about Batman, we spoke about comics as a whole continuing, as well as we spoke about the Transformers and advice for when you want to get into this industry and how you go about to be a part of this industry. So without further ado, here's the interview. When you inherited the title of Batman to write, you had to deal with the show and the comedy elements. How did you go about making Batman darker again? Well, it was similar to the uh, Green Arrow situation. I walked into Julie's office. What had happened was that Batman had, was one of the three superheroes in DC's line that had survived that 10-year dark ages when comic books, most of the companies went out of business and the ones that survived just barely survived. But that had changed partially because the camp became a fad and they did a TV show on ABC, a Batman TV show that was comedic. Camp is a fairly complicated subject and there's uh, stuff on it that you can read about it online. But for our purposes, it was a one-line joke. The joke is, I love this stuff when I was eight years old, and now that I'm 28 and I'm, I've got a job on Wall Street and I've got uh, two divorces in my past, and I'm very small, I, I drink a little too much, and I see my psychiatrist twice a week. But now that I'm that sophisticated person, Look how silly it is. I can laugh at what I, what I used to, to like, what I used to be. Thing really caught on. I was living in Greenwich Village, and I would, you know, uh, there were a lot of professors and writers and arts people, and you know, you would, you would see them watching Batman. It was on twice a week. The Tuesday episode ended with a cliffhanger. That was resolved, and the story was rounded off on the Thursday episode. The comedy was achieved in addition to that kind of comedic plot structure with what I hope was deliberately bad overacting and silly costume or costumes that might not fit have fitted as well as they should, and taking Gotham City which is a fantasy world. It is a world in which Batman can exist, and it is dark, and it is grim, and it is everything that's bad about New York City. And transposing it to Sunset Boulevard in Los Angeles on a bright and beautiful July day, and this guy with a costume that doesn't fit as well as it might is walking down this Los Angeles street. So, of course, it's you change the context, and it's going to look silly. And so that show was hugely popular for one season, uh, kind of popular for a second. It limped into a third, and then it was over. It was like somebody turned out a light. 
nation had tired of camp and had moved on. So I walked in, and the, the comic books had kind of been trying to follow the lead of the TV show because the TV show had raised the circulation of the comics. I don't think very many comic book guys liked it. I know Stan Lee didn't because the morning after the first episode, I asked him about it, and he said, well, yeah, he likely had a bit of animation that opened the show, pre-credits, and not much of the rest of it. I don't think that many of my colleagues, their sensibilities did not respond to that kind of humor, and either did mine. The first time Julie Schwartz offered me Batman, it was in the middle of that show of success, and I thought, well, you know, this just isn't my kind of thing. It's probably nothing I'd do well. I did write a straight Batman story villain for him about New Orleans jazz, which he loved and I like. And that eventually got printed. But basically, yeah, they did some of the things that the TV show did. But I don't think that many comic book guys were comfortable with camp. But all of a sudden, no camp. So Julie said, in effect... We're obviously going to continue to publish Batman, but no camp. So in that inimitable Jewish uncle way that Julie has, well, my boy, what do you got? Uh, well, now the terms of the assignment was it's a blank slate. Do something with it, just like Green Arrow and Green Lantern had been. What I thought I did was go back to what Bill Finger and Bob Kane started with in May of 1939 and add to it what the world had learned about how to tell comic book stories, what's a technique. And that's what we created, according to one historian, it's what changed Batman. I have since had reason to go back and actually look at that early stuff. And everything that Neil and Julie and I did is strongly implicit in the stories that Bill Finger wrote in the uh, late 1930s. But not, and especially after the fifth Batman story, uh, Origin, where he sees his parents killed, uh, a nightmare for any kid. Very powerful images. But it was not emphasized. And after Robin was introduced about 11 months later, tone of the character changed from this lone nocturnal avenger to a kind of, if, if not father figure, the best big brother anybody ever had. And for great stretches of the time, the origins were not mentioned. And then in the 50s, Batman, 50s were a period that, valued conformity, kind of chamber of commerce values. And Batman, well, I've, in a story that I read that was published in 1945, he was already a cop. He had a platinum police badge, it said. We never saw it, at least not in that story. But with Batman lie, I'm sure he had a platinum police badge. And the, the vigilante element of the character that was in the first stories was like Commissioner Gordon vowing to get that guy. That was all gone. He was a cop. He was an, author, uh, an establishment figure. And then in the 50s, that was pushed to an extreme. 
in one of the stories, there was a contest. Spend the day with Batman and Robin in the Flying Batcave. Uh, he was obviously the Donald Trump of Gotham City. A very much visible guy who participated in civic events and walked down the street in the middle of the day. Uh, it was it was what it was. I don't find those stories. I, I think I didn't find them very enjoyable when I, I read a sampling of them. But they were probably right for when they were published. That was probably a good, if not the best way to do Batman in that time. Then in the 60s, uh, it started out as a uh, with the comedic version when the the country had a kind of anti-establishment mood. And then Neil and I did our Secret of the Waiting Graves, and that kind of set the tone for the character. And this, the character has gone several shades darker than anything I would have considered doing. But it is still that, that basic character. So what happened was Neil and I, I don't know if I should blame Neil for this, but... What we were doing was having a false memory. This is what we thought that man was like back in the 40s, uh, or actually the late 30s, and was not real. Everything that we did was was in Bill Finger's work. You could find it there, and it popped up here and there over the years. But the dominant Batman was probably... The one that was not a vigilante and that was a solid citizen. Uh, the country was recovering from a war. You didn't want uh, somebody attacking the establishment when the establishment was just trying to recover from one of the few truly just wars in history. It caused great disruption of family and you know, a horror. So we wanted our heroes to be kind of psychologically safe. And then in the 60s, the attitude toward war changed for a lot of people, including me. When I started off, I enlisted in the Navy, partially because I believed what I was told, that if I didn't help stop them commies over in Asia, they'd be camping on my mother's lawn by Christmas based on no real fact. And like millions of my contemporaries, we realized that that was basically a lie. And if you doubt one part of the establishment, you tend to question the other part. So in the 60s, they were ready for a comedic version of Batman. And by the time Neil and I came along, well, they were ready for something else. Uh, your generation, my son's generation, uh, you've grown up in a much grimmer world than I did. Whenever I see Batman on a lunchbox or uh, the, the Batman roller coaster at the amusement park and a, a strong play to children, I think, don't they realize you're talking about a guy who saw his parents murdered and is obsessed with crime? He's a, a, one of the grimmest major characters ever, but that's okay. They they do well with the merchandise, and it doesn't prevent 
guys like me from writing the stories that we think are appropriate to write. I don't want to carry it as far as some people did. I don't want to make him a jerk. He is still a hero. And in my uh, private interpretation of Batman, uh, he is not crazy because he is capable of stopping. When a, uh, of someone who is schizophrenic would have to do what he does. Uh, in his case, it is a choice he's made to allow this childhood trauma to partially shape his life. Also, I think he probably kind of gets off on being Batman. Uh, but I would not make him as dark as other writers have, because then, in my estimation, he wouldn't be a hero anymore. When did you begin to edit Batman? I think it started in 85. I had, I had uh, worked for Marvel for about seven years. Dick Giordano, who had taken a job as the editor-in-chief at DC, offered me uh, a job being the Batman editor. I stood about it for a while because I had given seven years to Marvel. But at the end of various things happened that nudged me toward D.C. It's a little bit more complicated than I'm making it sound, but a few weeks later, I uh, I got a, a phone call from Dick on my answering machine. He said, in effect, you start Monday, welcome aboard. I'd had some bad times in, in my 30s. There were people who at D.C. didn't trust me, uh, and they were right not to. Paul Levitz once told me that we didn't expect you to live to be 40. Well, haha, I'm 76 now, so take that, you guys. Dick decided that he would take a chance on me, I guess. And I felt that I had better be really towing the mark and not give anybody any reason to question. And that's kind of what happened. But after after a year or so, I realized I don't really have to wear a jacket and tie to work. Uh, I, that, that's overdoing the, the goody two-shoes image. And as I, you know, sometimes you win the lottery. And when I went to work for D.C., I won it. It was a great job. I worked with great people. I'm still in touch with many of them and friendly with all of them. The job became one which involved a lot of travel for decades. Comic book guys were guys that lived in Queens, took the subway to work, had a two-week vacation, and no expense account. Well, that had all changed. Comic books were in the process of becoming respectable and becoming accepted as a legitimate narrative form. So... All of a sudden, the job became very interesting as well as respectable. Anything I proposed, nothing, nothing I ever proposed was turned down. In effect, I got to do what I wanted. And I worked with three guys. If I had dropped dead, any one of the three could have, you know, stepped in, sat behind my desk, and no, no reader would know the difference. And as I said, I'm still on it. Two of them were here yesterday on a visit. Uh, it just became the greatest. I had as a toy to play with Batman, who was a tremendously flexible storytelling tool. And it was recognized by maybe 70 to 80% of the people on the planet. 
I'm looking at a marionette that we bought in a, off of a guy who was sitting on a blanket in a square in a little Mexico town. And he was selling, as well as some Aztec gods, who was selling um, Batman marionette and a Bart Simpson dollar marionette. So it's a character that people... Everybody kind of recognizes, even if you have never read a comic book, you know who Batman is, you know who Superman is. And I was given a great deal of freedom in uh, how to use this character, and occasionally we got to do something that I think was useful to the society as as a whole. I don't know where you stand politically, but we... Did a, after a friend of ours was killed in a senseless shooting, or not a friend, a the son of a colleague died on Jane Street in Greenwich Village in a shooting that has never been solved and probably never will be a senseless crime. But we did a, an anti-gun issue, and later Jeanette Kahn introduced us to a lot of people who were concerned with landmines. I don't know that I was aware of landmines when I went into that village. I certainly didn't didn't have any care about them, but Jeanette said, meeting in the conference room at 3, and I walked in there, and there was one of my favorite folk singers, wow, Judy Collins, and I'm in the same room with her. And some guys in suits and ties that obviously were not comic book people, and it was about landmines, which are terrible terrible problem in a lot of parts of the world. So we did a Batman story in which he fails. A little girl dies from a landmine before Batman can rescue her. And the Superman guys did a how-to book, which was intended for kids. Kids are the main victim of of landmines. And, uh, you know, basically the Superman book had to do with... uh, This is what they look like. This is where you're likely to find them. This is what you do if you see one. It's basically run like hell. So we got to do things like that that made me feel good as a citizen and a father and all those things that I am in addition to being a comic book guy. So how could you – and, you know, everywhere I had gotten married to my childhood sweetheart – uh, somewhere near the beginning of that process, I think in 88, and she got to go with me everywhere that I went, which means that not only did I have company, that was sometimes the worst part of going to conventions. You arrive back in LaGuardia Airport at 1 in the morning and go home to an empty apartment. Well, I had company, and I had somebody who could keep track of the airplane tickets and the schedules and so on. So it just became a dream job. Given my limitations and my pluses, it was probably the best job there was. I can't imagine a better one. So as an editor, what was your role with Jason Todd's death? Well, Jeanette Kahn used to have editorial retreats where he would get, she would get all the editors and most of the assistants together someplace not in New York City. And we would work out in broad general strokes what the company would be doing for the next six months or so. I later started doing that just with the Batman guys, and it was one of the best tools that I had. 
Anyway, at the end of one of those retreats, Jeanette and somebody whose name is escaping me and I were sitting in a room, uh, Mohawk Mountain House, 25 miles from where I'm standing, and waiting for a ride back to New York City, kind of talking idly. And we had a problem, which I was not doing a very good job of solving. It was a Robin problem. Somehow the character had evolved in a way that made him not a very pleasant guy. It's not that Jerry Conway created him, and that's not what Jerry had in mind, but he had become kind of a brat. That's not an attractive trait, so I could either write him out of the series and replace him. I was... I don't think the company, uh, the corporation would let me just get rid of him. But, or we could give him some reason to have a change of personality. And then I thought, well, is this something we can let the readers decide? And I think it was me that came up with that idea. It could have been Jeanette. In any case, Jeanette immediately liked it and set in motion the, the stuff that we had to have to make it work. So I handled the editorial end. I worked on a story with Jim Aparo, and actually only a couple of panels on the last page would have needed to be changed. Jeanette worked out the business with the phone company, and uh, we went. They, we could not work it so that people who got their Batman comics from the newsstand could participate in it. But for the direct sales market, they had three days. You dial one number, or they, 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 they wouldn't let me use the word death or dying in the advertising for this. So in one case, you know, they, I forget what we said, but the Joker's plan succeeds, and you dial another number, and it doesn't. Dick was sure it would be thumbs up because he didn't think they – readers would want Robin to die, even that Robin. That was not Dick Grayson. And I thought that they would want him killed just to see if we had nerve enough to do it. So after three days, Mary Fran and I were alone in my office, and I picked up the phone, and I called a special number that would give me the final tally, and oops, thumbs down. Well, Okay, it was not by a very big margin, and I've heard that one guy programmed his computer to dial the killing number you know, repeatedly. So if that's true, that one guy made the difference. It was like 56 votes difference out of over 10,000 casts. And so I took the correct page, and I walked it down to the production office, and we got in the elevator and went home and kind of had a weekend. And when I got back on Monday morning, oh boy, uh, there were, for about three days, much of what I did was just talk on the phone to radio people. It was, it, it got way more publicity than it deserved. Uh, the local newspapers picked up on it. Uh, I, as I said, I was a nonstop spokesman. The woman who was in charge of PR did not let me go on television. I mean, at one point, I think there was a news crew that showed up 
and all I or anybody else would have had to do is walk out the door and we could have hyped the thing. She didn't want us to do that, and I don't know why. Uh, I could kind of see not wanting me to be on television, but Jeanette or Dick, articulate, bright people, authorities, for whatever reason, uh, we were kept anonymous, and I'm glad because the the reaction was huge, and I I was still riding in the subway downtown every night. I am glad that this face was not associated with that stunt, because uh, you never know what kind of disturbed person is out there. Anyway, so that's it was a kind of collaboration between the writer Jim Starlin and Jeanette and me. I was thinking of it as participatory storytelling, the kind of stuff that was happening occasionally in theater where the the audience would actually participate in the event. One of the attacks we got from the comic book establishment was we had staged a Roman circus. We had killed this innocent boy. And I finally, like, like, look, do you, do you people realize no kid was killed. We're talking about paper and ink and Jim Starlin's imagination. Uh, we didn't kill anybody and we didn't endorse killing. We told an unusual story. And I thought I would have a, a year to figure out a replacement for Robin. And then the next day, the corporation said, no, we have to have a Robin. So we scrambled around. I thought that <clears throat> Starlin and... Marv Wolfman did a great job of coming up with the next Robin. Uh, what they did answered some of the objections that were to the old Robin, the main one of which is, yeah, some, some father figured Bruce Wayne is he takes an eight-year-old and puts him in terrible danger five nights a week. Jim and Marv made, made him older and more mature, and I, I called a guy named Elliot Brown and had him design a costume. I don't think that's been used very much, but it was a costume that had all kinds of safety features built in, even, I think, gyroscope. So they came up with a character that would have been, even without the Batman connection, would have probably been a popular character. <laughs> and uh, at the end of the day, I'm glad we did. It was, was an interesting thing to try. And Anything you can do that's not illegal or immoral, you ought to do. When did you step down from editing Batman? About 14 or 15 years ago. <clears throat> we had had a lot of success, and about a year before that, one of my assistants, Jordan Gorfinkel, came in on a Monday morning with an outline he'd done on his own, wasn't an assignment over the weekend, for a story in which Gotham City is devastated by an earthquake. There were, uh, on the face of it, a whole lot of problems with such a story. But by then, my three assistants and I knew we were all quitting within a year. <clears throat> and Paul knew that. I mean, I had, had had discussions with him about it. And at one point, I was going to quit three years earlier, and he persuaded me, you know, go three more years, round it off. So uh, we knew that this was our last hurrah. Now, we could have just gone on automatic pilot. Of course, we could do Batman comics. We had been doing it successfully for years. 
we knew how to do that job. Uh, but we decided that we would either go out with a huge success or we would fall on our faces embarrassingly. So I took Jordan's outline and I took it to the, the executives and kind of reluctantly they approved of it. So off we were. I called an editorial meeting. I got as many people as I reasonably could. We talked about the thing for three days. We began to get resistance within the company to the point at one point I was thinking, well, if you guys had so many reservations about this, why are you letting me do it? I would be perfectly happy to just deliver another year's worth of Batman stories. Would certainly make my life easier. But we went ahead with it, and uh, our vindication came three months into it. Paul was in Baltimore with a hundred of the comic book shop managers and owners, and he asked if I would drive down on Sunday afternoon. So I did, and he publicly apologized to me for doubting the stories because by that time it was clear that we had a monster success on our hands. It was a chance to introduce new characters. It was a chance to tell the kind of story that nobody had ever really told before. It was a chance to reintroduce all of our favorite villains. It was tricky and difficult and I have a rule about not opening on a dull shot. Uh, it was one of our Batman mantras that you open on action. Well, in this case, uh, twice in the course of that 2,000-something page continuity, we had to show them a map in order for the readers to understand, okay, here's where the bad guys are, here's where the good guys are, here's where the problems are. So I broke my own rule twice because I couldn't think of any other way to do it. But none of that seemed to make any difference. It was a big success. Again, I'm very glad we tried it. Uh, if I had some bit of wisdom to pass to my successors, I would say that we did a number of those things, which I was calling mega series at the time. <clears throat> Long continuities that involved more than one title for more than six months. But you have to start with a story that will bear that weight. You don't start saying, I'm going to do an 1,100-page continuity and not know what it's about. We did those things when somebody like Jordan came in with an idea that we thought would sustain a really long, complicated story. So as a storyteller, it was a, great, it was a chance to do what nobody had ever quite done before. There had been a lot of crossovers and that kind of thing starting in about 1940. But nobody had done this kind of story. For example, we needed a new Batgirl. This was a, a chance to, to introduce characters in such a way that they would be likely noticed. <clears throat> and so it was. We finished that, and my three assistants and I went our ways. DC decided what kind of replacement they wanted for me, and they... They hired Bob Shrek, and Paul told me at the time that I was probably the last editor who would ever have a major franchise for more than about three years. 
In other words, they expected the Batman and the Superman and so forth, Wonder Woman editors to change a lot more often than they had. I don't know if that's true or not. I know Bob is head of another comic book company. I'm not sure who's editing Batman right now. Before we go into your work outside of comics, what was your role in Transformers? Almost none. <laughs> I uh, Other editors were getting these outside jobs, so I wrote a, what I thought was a funny memo to Jim F. Shooter indicating I was willing to, you know, do some of that outside work. And his, his policy was to give creative stuff to editors whenever possible. So I took a shot at doing Transformers, and I guess Jim didn't like it. He, I got a kill fee, which was a generous one for the amount of work. Probably took me about a week of, of writing time. And somewhere in there, I seem to have created Optimus Prime. That's what they tell me. I have no reason to doubt these people, so I will say yes. My take on it was way different. And given the success of the movies, they were probably right. So outside of comics, um, you worked and you created a book, uh, The DC Guide, How to Write Comics. Yeah. How did that idea come up? Uh, somebody told me that they were going to do it. And I told Paul Levitz I would kill my mother's dog to write such a book. And he said, well, we can't let your mother's dog die, so, yeah, you've got the job. I had been teaching comics writing for, you know, like maybe 10 years by that time, so I had notes. I thought I would just take and rewrite my notes, and this would end up being a pretty easy job. It ended up being kind of quite a lot of, quite a lot of work. But, you know, they're still selling it on eBay. I, I I don't think it's the best How to Write Comics book. I think it was the best when it came out. But Peter David's is arguably better. And Carl Potts' book, I think, is unquestionably better than mine. Uh, I would put mine in the top five, but there are some that are better now. And uh, I invited Carl Potts to lecture to my writing comics writing class and I think <clears throat> that the two hours that he was talking to them were the most in terms of learning useful stuff the best two hours of that semester but that's how it came about the job was there and in some ways since I had both extensive experience as a writer and uh, by that time <clears throat> a decent amount of experience as a teacher I in, in some ways, I was a logical choice. So as a teacher, what do you teach your students when teaching a writing class on comics? Uh, well, I have about 22 hours worth of information that I can convey. And uh, I like to leave a little elbow room so that if I had a chance to, to have somebody like Carl Potts come in, I can do it. But uh, there are, I mean, you, you can't teach anybody to write. You can't teach anybody to be creative. What you can do is show them shortcuts. 
make them aware of certain things that they may not know about that they would find useful. Give them some coaching, some help, some encouragement. Uh, so I kind of pride myself on the fact that most of my teaching is kind of left brain information. This is how many panels on a page. This is how you decide how many panels on a page. That kind of thing, it's technique. It's what uh, people don't think about when they're not professional writers. I have them each do. I, I tell them what mistakes I'll bet as beginners that at least some of them are going to make and uh, give them a final script to do. If I need to be grading that semester, that's probably mostly what will determine their grade. It's a tricky thing because uh, when, when grades are concerned, because they're not all starting from the same place. I will have a bright 17-year-old who just really likes comics and a 45-year-old who's been a professional writer for 20 years who wants to find out about this as a possible way for him to uh, earn more of his living. So it's it's not fair to judge them on quality. I can judge them on professionalism. If I say that the script is due on the 15th, the 16th is not okay. You can't turn it in late and not have your grade suffer. Because as an editor, it's true of me and every other comic book editor I know, the biggest problem we have is deadlines, because for some reason people don't think – I mean, people who will be super reliable when they're writing for television won't be when they're doing it for comics. Uh, somehow it doesn't seem important. It's a very difficult form of editing. I've edited a news magazine, for example. You'd think that since that's dealing with real-life stuff, it would be harder, but it's much easier. Because with comics, every job involves you getting work on time from a writer, a penciler, an inker, a letterist, uh, all those people who live in widely scattered parts of the country, not always on the same continent. It all has to come together in a month. So it, it can be a very difficult job. So I can, I can in the classroom, I can emphasize that, for example emphasize the need for professionalism and then give the techniques if you're going to play the violin you've got to learn the scales the stuff i learned when i was doing really the model i can teach i can't make somebody creative i can't make them a good writer i think that at one time i thought all it really takes is diligence if you want to work hard enough you can become a writer or a penciler and inker with all the experience I've had, I don't believe that anymore. I wish I could believe it. But you have to start with something. I think some kind of pre genetic predisposition to doing this work. But if you have that, there are maybe ways that I can help you. There are shortcuts. There are things that I had to learn by trial and error. I can just tell you, and you'll, you'll at least know about them. So it depends on what college I'm teaching at, but generally it takes between 25 and 30 hours to just give them hard information and encouragement. And I tell a lot of stories along the way and have a guest or two. So before we go, do you have any advice that you can give to people who want to write comics and be in the writing industry? Well, I can tell you some things that seem to be true. 
Uh, one of them is you have to start with wanting to be a writer or a storyteller. It's maybe not a good idea to start with wanting to be part of the comic book scene, which is a pretty cool scene. I'm not knocking it. Uh, you know, you get, uh, except for San Diego, you get to go to conventions free, and sometimes you get free comics and stuff, and maybe your your peer group recognizes your name. Uh, but the ones that I think became really good and maintained quality over a long stretch of time where people who wanted to tell stories and found comic books a con- congenial way to do it. They had a liking or a feel for the medium. I think Bill Finger had that in 1939, a sense of what a comic book is and how to use its strengths and its limitations. If you have that, uh, that's a good start. If you just want to be super fan, it might not be good. One of the problems with fans who become professionals, I think, is that as a fan, you do this when you feel like it. I'll work on my comic book this afternoon because it's raining and the day in the park has been canceled. Uh, if it's if you're a professional, you do it. You get the job done. I started thinking about technique, about structure when I realized working for Charlton, I'm not going to be inspired five or six times a month. I'm going to need a way to write this stuff where it will be acceptable. And it won't always be great. It'll probably never be great. But it won't sink below a certain level. And so what what is there that I can think about as opposed to trusting instinct to talent? to get this work done. And I guess did Dick Giordano and I once talked about our insecurities. Like, we were both very well-established professionals by then, but there's a part of me that thinks if I screw this up, they'll never give me another job. And to my surprise, that fixed attitude, too. So that's one piece of advice I can get. Become a writer. Don writes screenplays, and I sometimes wonder why he doesn't want to write novels. The other thing is read and get as much information in your head as you can. You don't know where your story ideas are going to come from, but they're not likely to come from old comic books. What are you going to bring to the table that we haven't seen before? Now, you can't do radical stuff, experimental stories. Of course, it has to be a good story well told. But maybe the particular setting or content or plot twist, something that you read will suggest that, which is why I tend to want to read more fact than fiction. That's changed a lot, but I don't think I read three novels a month now. And when I was working in comics all the time, I probably read two or three a week. But uh, one of the most successful short stories I ever published uh, came because I was reading a book about medical anomalies and I came across this thing having to do with uh, epilepsy and with that as a starting place I published a story that got picked up as one of the best of the year yada 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 I have used almost everything in my life in a comic book at one time or another, including the time I spent aboard an aircraft carrier that made it into, for a couple of panels, into a Batman story. So 
live in a way that's comfortable to you. I don't advise anybody repeating my life because there were some pretty perilous times in there. But read, learn things, and resign yourself to this fact that if you're going to be serious about doing this, you're going to sit down for, well, you'll decide, 20 hours a week, 40 hours a week, in a room, by yourself, in front of a screen or a piece of paper, manipulating words. After 50 years, almost, of doing it, I like that. Uh, people who may have talent but can't reconcile themselves to that aspect of a writer's life. They might do well on talent for a few years, but there will come a time in which it becomes really hard for them to work. Well, I think that, among other things, we all owe ourselves a decent life. And if you hate going to work every day, that's not going to equal a decent life. For me, a lot of times my private life was going to hell, well, I could go into that room and I could shut all that out and get paid for it. But you will find out, as I will tell you what works for me in terms of, say, scheduling my writing week. And that will be a place for you to start. And as time passes, you'll probably find that other things work better for you. You, you ought to not get stuck someplace. Uh, so I can either, I've, I've completely lost thread of your question, but I. I hope I answered it. And finally, do you have anything you would like to promote or suggest to your fans? One of the ways that I, uh, things I incorporated into my version of Batman was a an essay by Alfred Bester, who was arguably the best science fiction writer in the 20th century, certainly one of the best, who started in comics. He was a friend of Julie Schwartz. And he wrote an essay for the science fiction writers magazine about writing obsessed character and i thought yeah that's that's batman he that's the key to the psychology of this character he is obsessed uh i got to know alfie later and there's one quote of his that i would recommend any wannabe professional writer put on a three-by-five card, tape it above their workspace, and it's this. Among professionals, the job is boss, which means it's never about you. It's about this story that you have agreed to tell. Not about you at all. It's about the story. Among professionals, the job is boss. And those are the words that I would suggest writers live by. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast this week. As always, subscribe to this podcast where you get your podcasts from so that it will find you and you won't have to find it. Also, if you'd like to support this podcast, please go to popanimecomics.com. Click the support the podcast link. brings you right to Amazon at no cost to you. When you purchase something from amazon.com, I get a small percentage back which helps keep my production costs lower. And before we go, I'm going to just announce where I'm going to be in a few weeks at Liberty Con Anime Con. It's a very cool convention in Westchester, White Plains. I'll be doing two panels there. So if you're a fan of mine and you want to come out and you're local, please do come see me, get a ticket, and you'll see me in two panels dealing with some anime history and anime directors. Till then, have a great week, everybody, and I'll see you next week.